welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. Uh, we are doing a glut of episodes for us right now, apparently. Uh, I'm Victor Kinzer, and I'm here with my co-host, Simon Eichhornchen. And we're lucky enough to also have Charlie Cantrell, who is one of the writers on the Changeling 20th Player's Guide. And specifically, he is the writer who did the Lycians or Lycians. Uh, probably ask him about pronunciation. Uh, and because this is something that's big and new in Changeling, uh, we wanted to talk to him about it and ask some questions and see what his inspiration was. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so maybe could we just start and you can tell us a little bit about, is it Lycians, Lycians? Well, in my head, the entire time I was writing them, and for about the past year, I've been pronouncing them Lycians, but then Luca corrected me the other day. So, <laughs> so it is it is Lycians. That's, it, that's it good is, to know. It apparently is Lycians. So. Okay. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about them, uh, where the idea came from, what your, and yeah, how you put them together? They originated in the outline from the Player's Guide. Uh, Pete and Luca had that uh, section there, and they said uh, something along the lines of, we want to do playable Chimera, and in order for them to be playable, they need some sort of defense against banality, and we're going to call that their guises, and these things are going to be called Lycians. Make them different from the inanime and make them awesome. And that was all the direction I had. <laughs> so... Oh, that sounds a little bit like Luca. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that's both awesome and also it seems like that could be intimidating. It, it was very intimidating, actually. But uh, I had actually been sort of brainstorming on my own just for my own personal use um, as kind of a, I don't know, a thought exercise of how I might want to do playable Chimera. And I think Luca probably... I think I had mentioned it to Luca, and that's probably why he gave me that section. <laughs> One of the big things about the Lycians uh, that I had a hard time sort of cracking was how they work, how they were structured on a very fundamental level. Because when I had been brainstorming, I had been thinking of completely ephemeral chimera. I hadn't even considered the having a guise of some sort, uh, something to protect them from banality. So trying to figure out how that would work was kind of a stumper. But what really did it for me was years ago, I had run this long-running Changeling the Dreaming Chronicle. There was one of the, the big bad guys in that chronicle named Rasmus. He was this Thelane goblin terrorizing things. And uh, he had this right-hand being uh, named Ruby that was always harrying the players and kind of being a thorn in their side. For the first chronicle that, ha that, that involved these characters, we got to the big climactic ending, and uh, the groups Puka and Knocker had gotten trapped by Rasmus, and Ruby was, was about to do like uh, a killing blow to them. They pulled out some just massive cantrip rolling to, to slow down time so that they could so that they could come up with a solution before before Ruby executed them. And what they ended up doing was they they built a heart for Ruby to give her a conscience. Uh, a conscience. And since time would slow down, they installed the heart into Ruby. And suddenly 
she realized all the horrors that she had been committing and turned on her master, Rasmus, and she was the one who actually killed Rasmus. Throughout that chronicle and its sequel chronicle, we never really figured out what Ruby was. We, we knew that she was probably a chimera, but just your standard chimera just didn't really feel right for her. She always felt a lot more substantial than, um, than most chimera do. Um, until I started thinking about the Lycian, uh, Lycians. And then I realized that Ruby is a Lycan. From there, everything else about them kind of fell into place. That whole, that they have a nightmare side, uh, that was, directly came out of the experience with Ruby being this, this right hand of the flame, and then being brought, uh, now back from that to, to being a being of dream instead of nightmare. I, uh, uh, I looked into the uh, C20 core book uh, at the Nightmare Chimera, and there are the four types of Nightmare Chimera. And so I sort of thought, uh, what would these guys look like if they were Dream instead of Nightmare? And that's where the, the four guises got born out of. Um, I forget off the top of my head exactly which ones are analogous to which Nightmare Chimera, but... Uh, but that's kind of how I figured out what those what those four guises would be, and then from there it was just a matter of uh, of just writing it out essentially. So. Okay, and without giving people so much information that they don't need to buy the book, <laughs> <laughs> what's the what's the general shape of a Lycian character? Well, a Lycian character. Um, is a chimera, um, but they're a special kind of chimera. They're they're an object that has accumulated so much glamour, it has gained consciousness. Um, so it would be like a uh, like a statue that has had so many people who uh, are just in awe of what it symbolizes, or. Um, like a uh, like a virgin timber tree that's the last one standing from this forest and uh, uh, and all the people from all around come around and uh, and see this last stand the last standing virgin timber tree in the region um, just things that that uh, uh, that inspire people and inspire them enough that the thing itself gains an awareness so that actually brings up one of the questions I had when, when I read through, and that is all the text about if you do something that your shape, your guys, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still trying to keep those straight in my head in terms of what they actually mean in the game, cannot sure. do, then mm -hmm. it's, it's a banality trigger, which kind of throws back to, to Dark Ages Fae. Mm -hmm. But what is... The thing that's moving, or or if you're seen by a non-enchanted mortal, what is the thing that they can see? Because the way I read this, they all have your kind of chimerical body that mm -hmm. just exists in chimerical space. The guises, some of them have a physical thing. Mm -hmm. Then there are like the quixotic. Yep. So when the quixotic are moving and the quixotic are born of abstract objects like stories or memories or events. 
what does that look like in a game? What is actually moving and taking actions in the so, autumn half of the world? So in the autumn path of the world, in the autumn half of the world, for an unenchanted person seeing a lycan moving around, for three of the four guises, they're going to see whatever that object is. So like if it's the tree from, uh, from before, they would actually see the tree trying to interact. Um, uh, in the case of, uh, of, uh, uh, Ruby, uh, that I mentioned before, they would actually see this doll moving around, uh, if it were to, to, if she were to try and move with a, uh, with an unenchanted person watching her. Uh, the, from the changeling perspective, uh, anyone who's enchanted and can see the glamour, they would actually see the shape, uh, which is their, uh, chimerical body. Um, they wouldn't necessarily see the object itself. Uh, for the chaotics, though, um, they're special, since they are a, uh, the intangible Lycans, uh, is I think what I described them as. Um, that would be, uh, the thing that would be moving and interacting would be uh, in the case of of a, a story that's come to life. It would be the story moving, or a computer program, or a website, or a radio broadcast, or an event. There wouldn't really be so much for the for a, an unenchanted onlooker to actually see. So pretty much any kind of thing that they would do uh, with an unenchanted onlooker uh, watching them would probably be a banality trigger for them. That makes sense. Um, and that's kind of how I thought it probably worked, but it was the biggest thing that sort of jumped out at me as I was a little unsure of. Um, so I'm also curious about, you know, you mentioned your original sort of writing assignment was don't make them too much like the inanime. And mm -hmm. they're definitely different from the inanime in some ways. So the bucolic, uh, they're born from nature, naturally occurring objects such as trees or stones. And that mm -hmm. does seem a lot like the inanime. The, um, would you say it, the chaotic? Chaotic, yeah. Yeah, chaotic. They're definitely different. Um, the opidans kind of end up seeming a bit like, like dolls. And you do have a text, you do have a bit of text in here that I found really interesting about the relationship the Lycians have with the inanime. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how you kind of picture the inanime feeling about them. <laughs> so I picture the inanime as being, um, kind of having a, a very sort of split take on on the on the Lycians. On the one hand, because their dreams are so similar, uh, the they probably feel threatened by them because uh, they've seen new Fey replace old Fey over the history of the dreaming. Uh, the most recent example being the uh, the Tuatha uh, displacing the Fomorians. Um, but at the same time. Uh, I see some of them seeing the Lycians as, uh, as an almost, their relationship with them being a, a, in an almost parent-child sort of, uh, type of relationship. Because of all the creatures of the Dreaming, the inanime are probably the most tied to the natural cycles of the world, 
and the uh, the most used to and accepting of the endings and beginnings of things. And so they're probably the most likely to accept their own ending and uh, and be willing to, instead of fighting what's going to come next, to try and help guide the future so that maybe the future can avoid some of the mistakes of the past. When I was reading the uh, the Lycaeans, I think I think my new headcanon for the anime is going to be that the divide that's a lot more interesting if it's mm -hmm. between the anime and the the Lycaeans mm -hmm. because the Lycaeans it they make a much more interesting stand-in for the new modern ideas mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and i always felt like the anime the crafted gladeling divide was a little a little weak yeah um the way the way i was kind of thinking about it when i was writing the lycaeans uh unfortunately i i didn't think of the phrase until after I turned in my final draft, but I really like it. Um, we have the, uh, the inanime are the classical elementals uh, of the, the classic elements, uh, earth, air, fire, water, and, uh, and, but the Lycaeans are the elementals of the Anthropocene. So they have this very sort of they're the elements of the human world, whereas the inanime are the elements of the natural world. But at the same time, you've got uh, some an interesting faction of the inanime uh, that only really got a sentence in the original inanime book, and uh, I think it only got a sentence in C20 also. Uh, the The Kingdom of Flickers. And uh, as I was kind of thinking of them and how they might interact with, with the Lycaeans, I was thinking that they might be the faction that's trying to reconcile the two dreams, the, uh, the, the, inanime, the inanime dream and the Lycaean dream, and try and turn them into one dream so that, uh, so that the Lycaeans can take their place as proper fairy beings, but at the same time the inanime don't get erased in the process. I could see a lot of interesting stories around that. That the other thing I I'd love to see is I'd love to see a book that that did kind of talk about I don't want to say partially conflict, partially relationship between not just the anime and the Lycaeans, but the different factions of an anime. Because mm -hmm. I could see a whole story growing up about the difference between the classic old-fashioned, you know, Gladelings resenting their own for trying to change and mm -hmm. almost seeing that as a betrayal but the lycians playing a different role entirely because they're similar but they they came into being without a connection without any attachment um and thinking about like the psychology of those three those three kinds of tensions all interacting with each other and the people I've met who have picked up those roles in the real world, I think that could be a really interesting conflict if it was fleshed out. That that sounds like a lot of fun. I would totally play in that chronicle. 
Um, so one other thing I wanted to ask about is Nightmare uh, mm -hmm. and the Lycians. I really love the fact that they aren't part of the Tuathan dream, really, and they're not part of the Fomorian dream, really. Uh, it kind of, it, it sparked because I'm starting to do a chronicle uh, set during the Dust Bowl. Mm -hmm. And I've done like a one shot in the Dust Bowl before as a con game, but I'm I'm doing it with my players as a chronicle. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, interregnum things wiped out by remembrance and what does Seely and Unseely, what does Dream and Nightmare mean in a time period that terrible? And the thing that I've come to realize is Nightmare would kind of act like um, an immune system for the dreaming. Like when all hope drops, when you're just in the worst winter, people despair and that would keep the dreaming going until better times. Like it really would. You could shove right through banality into nightmare in a lot of cases. And, you know, I've been thinking about, like, through the Misty Remembrance, like, is this Fomorian too often thing? Is that real? Or is that a story that we've crafted to explain things and create enmities and political allegiances? But then you have this creature that's clearly connected to both with no like history in either. And I was, you know, I've had all those thoughts recently. What, how, what do you think that says about the dreaming and the nature of those origin stories? Well, first of all, I, I, I love the, I love your thought about nightmare being sort of a defense mechanism for the dreaming. That's uh, I've never, never thought of it that way, but that's, that's a neat way to look at it. Um, I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. Um, but uh, but what I was thinking when I when I gave them their nightmare was that they were a product of their time. Uh, it's this time on the edge of the endless winter where uh, the Tuathan dream is waning and the Fomorian dream is suddenly resurgent. Uh, but they're both but they're both powerful dreams still in the dreaming, and so these beings are born into the dreaming in its current state so they end up picking up a little bit of that they've got uh they've got the tuathan dream um in their uh in their changeling legacies they've got their they've got a little bit of the nightmare uh in them from their nightmare legacy and they've also got that uh that little bit of banality within them uh because they are a mundane object that's been brought to life, and that's not something that the dreaming has that that the autumn world or the dreaming has ever seen before. So it's this perfect storm of those three things coming together to create a new sort of being. So one of the ongoing conversations we've been having between Victor and me and some other people is um, finding the horror in Changeling, because sometimes mm -hmm. that's difficult. Where do you find the horror in the Lycaeans? In the Lycaeans, I find the horror um, uh, uh, in their nightmare because it's this it's this thing that sits beneath the surface that's not really who they are, um, even though it's part of them. It's not their conscious part of them. Um, it's that part of them that they could become if they're not careful. And, uh, 
and if they're not careful, they, the very core of their being, their thesis, can be wiped away and replaced with something else. So they become a completely uh, alien to themselves being uh, with, uh, with their former self completely erased. So it's a little bit like um, Bob the Skull from Dresden Files. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. <laughs> only, uh, only a little bit more uh, murdery. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting because the opening story where you talked about inspiring all of this was that only in reverse. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing, the thing I've said for, uh, I, I guess I started thinking about Changeling this way about like half a year ago hasn't really made it too much onto the podcast is um changeling is the amoral world of darkness game um <laughs> the i mean if you think about it like vampire is a very immoral game you're doing things that you know are bad they are against your you know moral alignment and you're fighting with that and then like, Werewolf and uh, Mage are both problematically moral games, like morality taken to the point of toxicity. Wraith is weird. Wraith is arguably also immoral, like you're fighting with this drive to be terrible. And then there's Changeling, where you're a story. That story doesn't necessarily have any moral alignment that's based on humanity. Um, like, the Red Caps certainly aren't moral, but they're a productive part of the Tuatha Dream. And I've been thinking a lot about the moments when your human part realizes the story is toxic and wants to be better being banality triggers because mm -hmm. they would be. And so having this sort of like flipping alignment, I think it would be really interesting to dive like full on into that, like fear of losing yourself mm -hmm. with nightmare Lycians. Cause it, it strikes me that that story doesn't have an alignment one way or the other. That's true. It's just, uh, it's really more about inspiration than necessarily good versus evil, because inspiration can take all sorts of forms. Um, and that's really the heart of glamour is to, to unlock potential and to, to go further than what, uh, than the ordinary. And that could take any form. That could be, you know, solving, you know, the hunger crisis in the world, or it could be, you know, uh, causing widespread famine, the likes that the world has never seen, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I, I like that about them. I really like that you sort of took the Bedlam system and tied it into true nightmare, like becoming nightmare, um, and, and connected the nightmare points with glamour instead of willpower. Um, just out of curiosity, did you ever get a chance to playtest that? No, I never actually got to play test it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, just the uh, the uh, turnaround time and deadlines were so short. There just wasn't uh, wasn't time to actually use it in play. Mm. But uh, uh, but I had used the um, nightmare system with uh, with changeling through play tests before, so I I kind of had a feel for how it would probably work in play. So one of the questions I had reading reading the Lycaeans was that. Um, how how much longevity do you see the average Lycaean having? Because a lot of them could be, at least on my read, could have been the embodiments of 
fairly transitory things like waves or like an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I see most of them as, as not having a very long lifespan at all, especially when compared to uh, uh, compared to a changeling. The classic one of a of a toy uh, brought to life because of the love of its owner uh, playing with it and just being so inspired. So as soon as that child grows up enough to no longer play with imaginary friends or or, or even toys, um, that uh, Lycan's days are probably numbered at that point, unless they can uh, seek out a, a changeling to kind of be their uh, benefactor. Yeah, tying that together a little bit with what Victor was talking about a minute ago, I feel like there's the mature reaction to that, which is either the acceptance of death or moving on to find another source of wonder. And then there's the the interesting reaction to that, where they decide to make their creator believe in them again. <laughs> well, that goes back to sort of Ruby's backstory. She got abandoned by her creator and... Uh... And uh, that's what pushed her over to the edge of becoming a nightmare. Um, she decided to seek vengeance on those who would abandon her. Which is a very Shinto story. I've read that about <laughs> umbrellas in one case. <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> yeah, I I kind of like the idea of um, maybe even having a story that's all Lycians and focusing on the difference between, you know, I could see like Lycians of waves or a particular like little hunk of, oh, cove in the ocean or a toy or not, not a toy, but things that come and go being Mm -hmm. very comfortable with their short lifespan. A Lego project. Yeah. Like having (laughs) so much verve in that moment Uh and then almost having like an enemy of something that refuses to let go. And so, necrotizes because that's that's kind of a a core world of darkness story not even a changeling thing like i refuse to die and i'm going to ruin the whole world refusing to die i mean story of the world of darkness Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah that's actually one of the few places where i feel like the triad becomes a really interesting point in changeling because parts of the dreaming becoming toxically persistent is really interesting to me. (laughs) Did you, have you thought much at all about how Lycians would fit into uh, a normal changeling chronicle? Like if one person said, Hey, I want to play a Lycian. um, Did you talk at all or, or put any thought into what those dynamics would look like? I actually gave the Lycians a specific Lycian background um, to kind of give them an in for a for a normal Changeling Chronicle. Uh, I called it uh, Changeling Companion, <laughs> and the the thought was that uh, if you're in a Lycian Chronicle, uh, the the Changeling Companion could be an NPC that's uh, the run about the way a Chimerical Companion is normally run. But if you're in a mixed Changeling Lycaean Chronicle, uh, the Lycaean's Changeling Companion could be one of the other PCs, and that would be a good way to 
to uh, have them be part of that group. I feel like there was text in the book, and now I'm not like wrapping my head around exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. um, would a Lycan in that situation, since they have so much more personality themselves, like they have so much more presence and anima, if you will, would they be able to sort of bond to a changeling the way a regular chimera does for the purposes of, say, calling on the weird, which could be very impressive if a Lycaean hitchhiked on that ride. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, totally. Um, they're chimera like any other chimera, so they, uh, uh, they could totally be a changeling's chimerical companion. Um, and so if a, in fact, I think I even had a line or two in there uh, somewhere. I can't remember if it was in the changeling companion write-up or, um, or someplace else. Uh, actually talking about uh, a, a Lycan convincing a change, they needed to do something so they would uh, convince their changeling companion to call the weird for them so that they could actually uh, physically interact in, in a certain situation. I think it was in the section where you were uh, describing their chimerical forms, the humanoid animal mythic thing. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think would be interesting thinking about this is if a changeling had a Lycian's dreamer as their dreamer, like if even the creation of the thing or the amount of investment that the mortal initially put into whatever aspect of the world was the result of amusing mm -hmm. and what that would end up doing to their relationship with the changeling that did that musing. Um, it just seems like that could be a really interesting story. It would be. Um, I think I even mentioned something, not exactly that, but, uh, but I believe it was in the chaotic write-up uh, talking about how the the uh, mythic chaotics will sometimes team up with changelings uh, to to uh, co-muse dreamers because the way Lycaeans muse is different than the way changelings muse um, so they could actually uh, co-muse a dreamer and then both gain the glamour from it uh, because they both uh, they've both gained the glamour in different ways but could they rhapsodize immortal well <laughs> the, <laughs> uh Lycaeans don't have uh don't have access to the paths of epiphany that uh that changelings do except for one <laughs> but uh that's not their main way of gaining glamour um but the only way they can the way they gain glamour is through uh, through their legacy, uh, so they don't actually have the path to epiphany. The only way they could do something like that is with the appropriate reeds, because there are certain reeds that will mimic a changeling's path to epiphany. Um, and I'm not sure if there's one that does... I, I'm pretty sure that there's a reed that, uh, that mimics Ravaging, but I don't know if there's one that r mimics uh, Rhapsody or not. I, I can't remember. I don't think there is, though. So how did you see um, Lycaeans feeding normally? The way I see it is them embodying their guys, because they're, uh, their guys, it being so inspirational, is what brought them to life in the uh, to begin with and so their uh, their legacy 
uh, should sort of reflect that. And so by embodying their guys uh, and, and getting people to be inspired by their guys, um, uh, we'll get people to act in accordance to the Lycaean's legacy. And if they do that, then they gain the glamour from the person, uh, from the mortal fulfilling the, the uh, quest of the Lycaean's uh, legacy. So a little bit like the uh, borderline suicidal inanimate ability to muse people who happen on their anchor. Uh, yeah, kind of like that. I was thinking when you were talking about Rhapsody and Reeds and like the limited access they have, I kind of like the idea that they can't rhapsodize, they can't even understand it, like having that as a baseline, because to me it opens an interesting story about a Lycian's dreamer, the one who originally dreamed them, and they have some relationship with being rhapsodized. And I could see a whole interesting story where their dreamer is rhapsodized, they somehow interrupt it, and the only way for them to continue to survive, to continue to really even have like that initial spark is to suck up all that glamour and kill the changeling who did the rhapsody and interrupt it and learn how to do it through that and then have that be the only way to survive for them mm. going forward just a complete corruption of what they are i think that would make a fantastic villain the sakura cards turned clear and shattered yeah exactly but like yeah. and my favorite kind of changeling villain the tragic kind not the <laughs> i'm malevolent because mustache twirling villain yeah be kind of like a uh, a dauntane version of a lycan uh a, a lycan that's fundamentally broken somehow and uh I like that. That's cool. <laughs> Ugh, that would be rough as the uh, the pure idea version. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it would. <laughs> yes. Was there anything else in the player's guide that you were particularly impressed with? Maybe uh, that you wrote, but maybe that you didn't. Uh, I did not write it, but, uh, um, but I love the... Uh, uh, the expansion and the depth given to the Shadow Court. Um, the I know who wrote that one, uh, and uh, she did just a fantastic job with it. Um, uh, and uh, I was, I don't know how to put it, uh, nervous isn't the right word, but, uh, but because I wrote the Shadow Court write-up in the C20 core book, and, uh, and there was a line in that that was, we'll say divisive, um, and it was unintentionally so, and, uh... Oh, I remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, I was... I wasn't able to take on as much word count, uh, in the player's guide as I was really hoping to, just because of, um, just the situation at the time when the, uh, uh, when it was time to start writing on it. Um, so I had... I was kind of hoping to also get the Shadow Court section to kind of clarify and redeem, <laughs> so to speak, uh, what I had done in the core book. But uh, Christine just knocked the Shadow Court out of the park with, with what she did. Uh, she was definitely the right choice for that, and she did awesome with it. So. Yeah, I think we were both really impressed with the Shadow Court sections. <laughs> yeah, I... I, you know, speaking to the bit you 
you were referencing from C20. Uh-huh. I liked how she expanded that. She didn't even really spin it. She just expanded it enough that it had space to work where mm-hmm. the black court and the revolutionary aspects of the shadow court were really distinct groups acting against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I liked that a lot. I liked the implications of the shadow court seat and that it's probably a puppet on there, but then that becomes what happens if a non puppet gets up there. Like mm-hmm. what happens if the, the story I really want to spin there, if I ever get the right group for a political changeling game, which I don't have the right players for that right now, <laughs> but I'd love to kind of do, yeah, there's someone who's playing the Manchurian candidate and sitting on that seat and playing the role because that's what he has to do to be close enough to power or they have to do it could either way mm-hmm. um, to be close enough to power to subversively make change in the halls of power. And they mm-hmm. keep the black court just appeased enough so they don't put a real puppet up there. Mm-hmm. And all the like messy failings, do the ends justify the mean stories that open up there? I think that could be really fascinating. Um, but I like that tension and what that opens up. Oh yeah, there's just so much story potential there. I uh, I've never actually wanted to do a a shadow court based game. I just <laughs> the witch's brew of this conversation made me consider that the idea. Lycaeans are the soul of the court's entity you could call on. <laughs> the Seely idea Lycaean and then the unseely idea Lycaean and they spread their own identity into the groups and there's this horrible feedback loop there. And right now there's more than one shadow court idea. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> well, and I'm just thinking like, how cool would it be to have a changeling game where they have like a Lycaean companion, either an NPC or a player. And you know, like it could, it could easily get in that mode where like, Oh yeah, you're the sidekick mm-hmm. and let them think that. And then have the story, bring them into the parliament of dreams and they meet the Lycaean of Seely and the Lycaean of Unseely. Mm-hmm. And what epic entities those things would be. Mm-hmm. That it would be, be such a great way to shatter expectations. It would. That mm-hmm. would be beautiful. Because <laughs> that's always the challenge with Chimera and other familiars and dependent NPCs, mm-hmm. making them, giving them any spotlight, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. That is, just as a storyteller, because you don't want to take the spotlight away from the PCs, but uh, but at the same time, the players kind of expect the uh, the companion that they spent those points on to 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 actually be a part in the story so Mm -hmm. yeah do you want to take the opportunity to promote any of your own current or upcoming work i released on storytellers vault a very small pdf uh called fragments of the lycaean dream it uh includes some of the or not some all of the cut material uh, that I overwrote on the Lycaean section. It, uh, it has Ruby's uh, backstory and uh, stat write-up. It also has a sidebar of inspiration, inspirational material for the Lycaeans um, to kind of help storytellers uh, uh, get some direction on what a Lycaean chronicle might look like. So 
It is a free download on Storyteller's Vault. Tipping is encouraged. And tipping is encouraged, yes. <laughs> that was our discussion with Charlie Cantrell, the writer of the Lycaean section of the C20 Player's Guide. I would like to thank Charlie for being here and being game to do this with us. I'd like to thank my co-host, Victor, for also being game to do this. And I'd like to thank everybody who listened and encourage them to, if any of this sounded interesting, pick up the books. And thanks for listening to Walking Away from Arcadia. 